Number 11, God's Mission, 4th Quarter, 2023. Daniel Duda. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to start Lesson 11, Mission to the Unreached, Part 2. Dr. Daniel Duda is our moderator, and the quarter is God's Mission, My Mission. Jane is going to offer our opening prayer. Kind and loving Father, this morning we are before your presence. We sincerely want to thank you because your goodness and mercy abides forever. Thank you for this wonderful morning that we can share your word on how to go far and wide and reach out to others. Lord, we want to pray for our moderator today. I pray that you will put words in his mouth, oh God. May you continue to instruct us, oh Lord. And whenever this voice goes far and wide, may souls be won for you, dear Jesus. Thank you for this wonderful family. And Lord Jesus, as we study and discuss today, Lord, we invite you to be in our midst. This is our sincere prayer and desire this morning in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Good to see you all. And thank you, Jane, for your prayer. So we are on lesson number 11. Last lesson was on Paul in Areopagus in Athens, trying to reach to a completely different crowd. And so he cannot use the Bible and the quotations because the Bible is no authority to the Greek believers. And if you look under number one, you will see that this time we are going to see how Christ ministered in the region of Tyre and Sidon and draw the lesson that apply to our lives from this encounter. So if you look at the three texts in Judges in 1 Kings 5 or 1 Kings 11, which is about Solomon, what do you learn about Tyre and the surrounding places? How are they perceived by the Israelites? Are they friends? Are they enemies? How are they perceived? If you were a typical Israelite of the day, what would you expect that your attitude should be towards these people? Bob? I think Tyre was considered a wealthy city. It supplied the cedars of Lebanon. We know it was an island, a trading nation. Of course, Alexander the Great turned it into a peninsula much later, but I don't think it was considered an enemy of Israel because that is where Solomon obtained a lot of his materials. So I think it would be considered a trading partner. Okay, definitely during the Solomon, it was a major trading partner. Terry. I was looking at the judge's reference, and it says that... The Israelites took the daughters of the surrounding nations as wives for themselves and that they worship their gods. So at that point in time, it doesn't appear that they had an adversarial relationship with them. Yes, that's right. Bob Kern says in the chat, it was a busy place like New York City today. By the time we come to the New Testament, Josephus Flavius says that people of Tar and Sidon are our bitterest enemies. Now, it's easy. And of course, the reference from 1 Kings 11 says that Solomon took the wife, married the Sidonian princess, and she was one of those who led his heart astray. And so it would be easy to conclude, as the Jews at the time of Jesus did, that they are not supposed to have anything to do with these pagans. They had negative influence on the nation, and lo and behold, Jesus takes his disciples to that region. So what would be the reason why Jesus brought disciples to this place? Matthew 15, and starting from verse 22. Just then a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. 
My daughter is tormented by a demon. And Mark 7, 24. So the story is found in Matthew and in Mark. From there, he set out and went away to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know that he was there. Yet he could not escape notice. But a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him, and she came and bowed down at his feet. Okay, so the interesting thing is that Jesus goes there. Now let's go back to Matthew 4, 23. When Jesus begins his ministry, he starts in his home territory, that is up north in Galilee. And let's read Matthew 4, 23 to 25. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, and paralytics, and he cured them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. All right. So Jesus starts the ministry in his home territory. This is the most successful part of his ministry. Great crowds are following him. And we read that people from Syria in verse 24. So that's east. Now you hear in the news about Golan Heights. So that's Syria. And then great crowds follow him from Galilee, the Decapolis, that's the pagan region to the east and southeast, Jerusalem, that's south, Judea, and from beyond Jordan. Now, do you see any place missing here geographically that's nearby? That's exactly Tyre and Sidon. Interestingly enough, people don't come from there to listen to Jesus. So what does Jesus do? If they don't come to him, he goes to them. And let's read Matthew 9, 35. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and curing every disease and every sickness. And the next verse. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Okay, so Jesus taught in the synagogues. That's obviously in Galilee, in Judea, in Jerusalem, so in the Jewish territory. But then we learn that when he sees the crowds, he has compassion on them. And that applies not only to the Jewish crowd, that applies to the non-Jewish crowd as well. And so in Mark 4, we read that Jesus said to his disciples, let's go to the other side, and he takes them to Decapolis. That's where the remnants of the seven nations of Canaan lived. And of course, Jesus heals a person there, the demoniac, who wants to go back with them, but Jesus forbids him. In the Galilean territory, Jesus says, come and follow me. In the Decapolis, Jesus says, don't follow me. Stay where you are. Go to your family and tell them what God has done for you. And we don't learn anything about the disciples, about their attitude and their activities. Obviously, they are not too happy about this, but Jesus takes them away to the territory that they would not visit normally. In Matthew 16, he takes them to Philippi, which is pagan territory and a pilgrim place where people come and worship the goat, Pan, P-A-N. We got the panic attack from that. So they have sexual 
orgies as a way of stopping the demons through the gates of Hades. There is this cleft in the rock, which they call the gates of Hades, and through which they believe the demons are entering the world. And so they have their ways of managing this. And so no good Jewish boys would ever go there, but Jesus takes them there. And now in Matthew 15, he takes them to the region of Tar and Sidon. Now, why would Jesus take these people there? What do you think? What's the purpose of that? John? In Kings chapter 5, it clearly states that the people of Tyre and Sidon are very close friends with Israel. In fact, the temple couldn't have been built without Hiram's help. Yes. Yet the division between the two parties has increased so much that they won't, I suspect, talk to each other and want nothing to do with each other. So Jesus sets out to heal that rift and teach the disciples how to react with strangers, non-Jews. So it goes there, particularly for the disciples' benefit. Okay. So he wants to teach them something they would not be able to learn back in the Galilean village. He takes them out of their comfort zone, and he exposes them to something that they would not be exposed to in their home territory. And so this is important that God is more interested in our growth than in our comfort. Remember in Ezekiel 28, the king of Tyre is portrayed as a type of Satan, Lucifer. And the city, which was famed for the temple complex, his renowned garden enclosures, is a type of the Garden of Eden. Larry? Christ fully understood how lost and without hope they were. The Jews at the time truly didn't because they detested them. And when you detest people, you really don't have empathy and you don't see their plight as being something that is healable. So is it possible that by going there, Christ is exposing them to really see what life is like without the presence of Christ and without the presence of disciples in his spirit around so that they get a firsthand view and truly grasp how bad things could be. Yes, definitely, definitely. Lou? He knew the hearts that were there that needed his love, needed to see the kind of God he was. And I think that that's where he puts his priorities. He doesn't look at the outward. He looks at the inward, sees the heart. And that's why he went there. Is that right? Oh, sure. But he also wants to teach something, his disciples. Now, there is an American political scientist at Harvard. His name is Robert Putnam. And he says that the sociologists distinguish between two kinds of connections, between bonding and bridging. So when you have relational problems, you usually deal with them either by attacking people or withdrawal. Now, God's people in the Old Testament practiced both. So they attacked, they did their own share of attacking these Canaanite and pagan nations around them. And then they did their share of withdrawal from them. So you would expect that they understand that this is God's will for us. How does Jesus correct by going to these people and having compassion for them? The traditional understanding, what is God's will? John? This story reminds me so much of the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, that Jesus had to go via Samaria. And again, for the benefit of the disciples, we're amazed at how he relates to 
the woman at the well, and he's teaching a very similar message. Yes, yeah, so John says that he had to go. Now, of course, all the contemporaries didn't have to go because they crossed on the other side of Jordan and bypassed the territory of Samaritans. But Jesus had to go there because he wants to meet these people and wants to minister to them. And of course, the disciples, when they come back from McDonald's, are very surprised that Jesus talks to a pagan woman because the rabbis have a saying that for the words of Torah to be given to a woman, it's better to burn them. So no rabbi worthy of his salt would talk to a woman in public, not even his wife. And so the disciples who went to buy the food, they still cannot avoid dealing with them. So they have to buy the food from them, but they cut the necessary dealings to minimum. They are very surprised how Jesus treated her. But of course, we are still in the territory that used to belong to Abraham and Isaac because there is the well that Jacob dug out. Okay, Bob? Was another reason Jesus went there was because he was trying to show what was supposed to happen in Israel because from what sometimes we've studied is that Israel was to be a blessing to all the nations and to essentially be a missionary country. So in a sense, he may be doing what was supposed to happen for the last thousand years, but never did. Just a possibility. That's right. And it's very important. So his visit functions as a corrective of their understanding. Dan? I recently had occasion to talk to someone who's been thinking a lot about Daniel 11. And he pointed out that all bad things, uh, as far as foreign things, came from the north, whether it was Assyria or Babylon or anyone, Rome. They all came from the north. And I wonder whether the Israelites had a cultural adversity to anything that was north of them. And that there was sort of a broader feeling about uh, things, whether it was Tyre and Sidon or other places. And then they, they sort of just grouped everything outside of their northern borders as bad. And God was maybe in the form of Jesus was working against a bigger cultural problem that existed. I don't know if that's true, but I'm curious to know what you think about that idea. Yeah, so nobody could come from the west because there was the sea, the Mediterranean Sea there. Nobody could come from the east because there was a desert that they could not cross. It was just too big. And so if they wanted to come to Palestine, there were just two routes. The north, as you mentioned, and of course then south, and that was Egypt. And so the king of north and the king of south will be the two models of enemies of God in the book of Daniel, chapter 11 especially. And so while Pharaoh is the one who is God, I don't know God. So he represents the powers that deny the power and knowledge of God. Babylon and Persia represents the powers where the rulers present themselves as gods. You know, the attempt to reach heaven by our own effort. Genesis 1, definition of Babylon. So Jesus wants to show that there is something there in north which is not that bad and evil. And we will... Watch that as we read the story. See the mission that Jesus accomplishes there. Livius? I just want to extend maybe Bob's comment on Jesus wanting them to reach out and break the racial tensions that the Jews had against the Gentiles and the Samaritans and to you know effectively go out into all the world, if you will. But what's interesting is the description, the passage in 1 Kings 5 of building of the temple. And the temple, Solomon's temple, God's temple is the building, supposed building where God dwelt. This is where God dwells. And it was built with material from the Gentiles, from the pagan nations surrounding them. 
And what's interesting is that Hiram says in verse 9, 1 Kings 5, it says, and you shall meet my wishes by providing food for my household. So I think symbolically, maybe spiritually, that is the outward outer nations were supposed to be fed with God's word. And maybe that also carries on to what Jesus is trying to do here by taking them out, taking his disciples out to Tyre and Sidon. In the same way that this description of this temple being built with timbers and materials from outside the nation of Israel was also effectively supposed to do. So here's a pagan king saying, we provide material to you and you should provide food for us. Uh, They are a significant business partner, but fast forward a few centuries and the Jews do not see them as someone they are responsible for providing spiritual food for them. They withdraw and isolate from them. And so that's the measure of their spirituality, the exclusion. Henry? Most of my religious experience has been within the Hispanic community. And there is this expression typically within church. We are the saved. The outsiders are lost. We are the ones with the hope. The ones outside of the boundaries are the ones that are hopeless and with no opportunity at all. Is this intention of Jesus taking them to these places to show them that lost are in both sides and that there is people willing to follow him regardless of what background information you have? Because people was following him from these places, even though there were racial differences, and they didn't care about that. And God, in the person of Jesus, was willing to receive them. Was that one of the intentions possible, the lessons that Jesus was trying to show them? So the fallen human spirit has the tendency to exclude, to divide the world between us and them. And so in every society, there is a way, how do you reward those who are like you and how you punish those who are different and you refuse to offer them any heart or goodwill and you have the feelings of superiority at their expense. And they are not part of the inner ring. C.S. Lewis wrote this brilliant essay on this exclusion called the inner ring in society, school, church, workplace. There are little groups of people who are on the inside These groups are never formal. No one votes on that, who gets in, who gets out. And it's reflected in some subtle things, the nicknames, the inside jokes, the invitations to certain events that you are invited and you are not invited. And once you are inside, you discover that there are some other further rings. And this is how the society works in a fallen context. Lou? Well, that just shows how exclusive human beings have become, but God is very inclusive. And like, I love the words that John Pauline often quotes, that God is working and he was and he is working in every heart and every nation and every religion and every non-religion. God is totally inclusive. And somehow I was wondering how the dream or the vision that Peter had there with the clean and the unclean, how that plays into today's subject matter, because he had to learn about that God's children were the Gentiles as well as the Jews, and it was the heart that mattered. Yes, and we will come to that. So the lesson that they did not learn in this situation, in this incident, this event, they will have to learn later.
because God is incredibly patient with his children. Arthur? I was just marveling at, at how the building of the walls of exclusion that was happening during that time seems to be apparent even in our time, especially so when if all of us, if we were to be transported back in time to the early century, none of us would fit into that community. They would view us as the outsiders. But for some reasons, all of us who are now outsiders now have built another wall to exclude others from us. So it's just so interesting that even those who are outside when they come in, they still build a wall of exclusion to keep others out. So maybe it's the human condition, this sin that is within us that seems to perpetuate even up to today and we're still struggling with the same issues. Yes, so in Jeremiah 29, we read that God says, for this reason, I carried you over to Babylon. Now, the Israelites think they are there because Nebuchadnezzar carried them there, but the prophet gives them a different perspective and says, no, God gave up Jerusalem into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. God carried them over. And the reason is, according to Jeremiah, so that you can learn something you would have never learned back in Jerusalem. And because they don't learn it, they still isolate and consider them as enemies and dogs. They work on the principle of exclusion. Jesus again takes the disciples there. So let's pick up the story, Matthew 15, verse 21 to 23. Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Just then a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. But he did not answer her at all. And the disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she keeps shouting at us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered, It is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. All right. So here we are. Matthew tells you that it was a Canaanite woman. So Matthew's gospel is written for the Jews. So you know what kind of uh, relationship they have towards Canaanites. And here's a woman that approaches Jesus. So she crosses the gender boundary. Normally, they would not speak. Women would not address males in public. She crosses the religion boundaries. So she's a pagan woman talking to a rabbi in Judaism. And of course, she crosses the geographical boundary because she speaks to someone who is not of her own tribe. And she says, Lord, now curious. Yeah, it can be taken as a polite title, sir. But she three times addresses him as Lord in this story. And of course, son of David is a messianic title because the previous son of David, Solomon, made these people their slaves. So there is this unspoken question, what kind of son of David, what kind of Solomon are you? Are you the same as the Solomon was or are you any different? And he says, my daughter is tormented by a demon. And I don't know about you, but when I was a little boy, I used to wonder about this story a lot. Did Jesus wake up on the wrong side of the bed? If you look under number six, she comes to him in her desperation. 
crosses the boundaries. So the initiative is on her side, the boundaries of ethnicity, the gender and the religion, which normally people would not cross in her day. And Jesus, instead of welcoming her, he doesn't say a word. Verse 23, he didn't answer her a word. And so it's so obvious how he ignores her that his disciples come to him and urge him saying, send her away for she keeps shouting after us. Now, there is little megalomania going on in the text because the text says nothing about us, about them. She's talking to Jesus. She's not talking to them. But they feel, you know, we are so important. We come here for a little rest and recreation and everybody wants a piece of us. So they see this, how important they are. But of course, they have no time, no place for women, for Gentiles. In their eyes, she's down there send her away. We have nothing to do with her. And the strange thing is that Matthew doesn't try to hide it. The same with Mark. So her daughter is suffering terribly. She comes to Jesus and appeals for help. And you would expect that the disciples say, okay, do it for her. It doesn't cost you anything. Heal her daughter, and then we can continue with our rest and recreation. But no, they are not going to be on her side. They are not going to defend her. They are not going to be mediators on her behalf. What is their answer? Send her away. We don't have time for this. It's getting on our nerves. Let's get rid of her. And Jesus responds with silence, with indifference, and then even a rejection. Now, what's going on? And Matthew doesn't hide it, so why is it important? What are the clues in the text to show you that something important is going on? Did Jesus wake up on the wrong side of the bed? What is going on? Why is Jesus so dismissive, so uncompassionate? downright rude. Livius? I wonder if that's the case. Psychological twist here is I wonder if Jesus is feeding into what they expect him to do. And he basically turns their perception upside down by having the woman answer and saying that she has great faith. So I'm thinking that I don't know that you could look at it this way in that he's saying, okay, well, these guys think she doesn't belong. Let me see how she answers. Does that make any sense? which I think is a powerful lesson of how he's actually working on his disciples' hearts as well. So obviously Matthew and Mark know something that we do not know yet. They know something because they do not hide it. They want you to struggle with it as you read the text. What's going on here? Why is Jesus behaving like this? And you discover that Jesus is a master teacher who deals with his disciples and the woman at the same time, just on a different level. Robson's? What I found fascinating about this story, reading it earlier, was that I realized who Jesus was, obviously not for the first time, but Jesus knows how the disciples are going to respond. Jesus knows how the woman is going to respond to his comments or to his silence. And as you say, Daniel, he is using that as a teaching forum, not just for the woman to meet her needs, which he obviously wants to do, but to teach particularly his disciples. So when Jesus ignores her, this is test part one for the disciples. What do the disciples do? They say, that's right. That's how she needs to be treated. That's okay. We don't have time for this. There's the clue. She's bothering us. Text says nothing about them. The woman only addressed Jesus, but they want to identify with their teacher. They want to see in which direction the wind is blowing, test the water, read the room. And then they decide how they are going to respond. And when Jesus is silent, say, yep, yeah, that's right. Well done. That's what she deserves. And they don't realize that it's a test. If you read Mark, the story there in Mark, 
in chapter 7, do you know what's at the beginning of Mark 7? What was the teaching moment, what Jesus dealt with? What was the issue in Mark 7 at the beginning of the chapter? Jesus has a teaching session. And what is the teaching all about, Rita? Well, the beginning of Mark chapter 7, it's about what's clean and what's unclean. Yeah. And Pharisees' definition and Jesus' response to that. What makes a person unclean? And Jesus says, it's not what comes from outside, it's what comes from inside. So... Jesus made it very clear that this uncleanness, what defiles people, has to do something with your heart, with your mind, with your thoughts. And so after the teaching session, verses 1 to 23 in Mark, what comes after the semester of teaching? Here's an exam, verse 24. So let's go to the region of Tyre. There comes a woman and Jesus ignores her and the disciples say, that's right, she's unclean. And they don't realize they just failed the test. Jesus testing them on what was taught in Mark 7, and they failed. At the same time, a woman comes to Jesus and says, I need your help, and Jesus ignores her. Now, what does it mean to her? What signal does it send to her? How serious are you with your request? Will you fall at the first hindrance? How important is the health of your daughter to you? Dan? To me, a remarkable part of this story is I do a little bit of writing, or I have maybe more in the past. And... I can't imagine, I would picture myself the way these two writers have allowed themselves to be pictured. It shows a remarkable amount of growth that they developed spiritually in order to tell the story the way it was told. Who'd like to tell a story where you look like you're the biased, prejudiced person? I just think it says a lot about how we Christians can grow and how we can get rid of some of the shortcomings that we have if we let the Holy Spirit work on us and if we're susceptible to the gospel. Anyway, I'm struck by the maturity of these two writers in telling this very unusual story. Yes, thank you. Jane? I found in one of Ellen White's books about this story, and that says, this was the only miracle that Jesus wrote while on his journey. It was for the performance of this act that he went to the borders of Tyre and Sidon. He wished to relieve the afflicted woman and at the same time leave an example of his work of mercy towards one of a despised people for the benefit of his disciples when he should no longer be with them. He wished to lead them from their Jewish exclusiveness to be interested in working for others beside their own people. He longed to unfold the deep mysteries of the truth which had been hid for ages that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs with the Jews. Yes, mm -hmm. thank you. And Rusty also put in the chat quotations from Desire of Ages, page 400. Now, my question to you is, would you have seen this in the text if you did not have Desire of Ages? Can you see there in the text? It's hard to see. It's hard to see until when we come at the end of when everything is done is when you say, oh, okay, this is what Jesus was aiming. But at the beginning, honestly, you don't see it. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Matthew 15, 24, when Jesus answered, when, when the disciples had said, send her away for she keeps crying out afterwards. Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, I think over the years, we've read that as him addressing that answer to the woman, but he's addressing that answer to his disciples. That's right. And 
it's very clever because he's addressed it to them, but so she can hear. And they think that he's on their side, but he's also saying to them, you people are lost. I came to the lost sheep of Israel. And the woman is hearing this and she said, I don't care. I'm here too. It's not just the lost sheep of Israel who want you, Christ. It's us as well. Yes. So in the first round of the exam, Jesus doesn't say a word. And she has to deal with the question, how much am I willing to trust this guy? How much am I willing to take? And she passes and they fail when Jesus didn't say a word. And then he says, I'm only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. So the second exam comes and the disciples start nodding and say, yep, that's right, that's right. Nobody of them says, uh, excuse me, but didn't you say in Matthew 8, didn't you say previously that Gentiles will come from east and west and sit in the kingdom with Abraham? So I don't understand exactly. If you told us then that you are not only sent to the lost sheep of Israel, you are sent also for the Gentiles who will come from all directions of compass into the kingdom. Now, why are you saying that you are sent only to the lost sheep of Israel? Nobody asks an intelligent question. Why? Because they read, I am sent to the lost sheep of Israel as a confirmation of their biases. And that's why they completely miss that he is saying to them, guys, but you are the lost sheep of Israel. I am sent to help you. So they fail the second exam. So now they have two Fs in their card, and she has two A's in her card. So when they met her, they didn't see in her somebody who could be superior to them, somebody that they can learn from. They see her down there as a scum, as a woman, as a Gentile. We don't have time to waste on her. And Jesus shows, actually, guys, she is an eagle, and you are pigeons, you are the lost sheep of Israel who need to learn something from this woman. Iris. Yeah, I see a cognitive disconnect between all the other verses, all the accounts in the Gospels, where I see inclusiveness in Christ all the time. This, to me, is a unique story that really stands out, where seemingly he rejects someone. And that, I think, immediately raises attention to, oh, what is going on here? This is not like Jesus. So the astonishing thing is, <laughs> you talked about the confirmation biases that the disciples had, that they did not even realize this disconnect. In fact, he was enacting their way of thinking, yep. and they didn't see how this is not like him. This is just contradictory to everything they experienced before with the woman at the well, with the many others who have asked for help and Jesus freely granted it. He healed all their sick people. Yeah, so... Yes, earlier in Matthew, in chapter 8, another Gentile, this time a Roman centurion, comes to Jesus with a request and Jesus granted it. He healed his servant. And then he says to them, Matthew 8, 10, I haven't found faith like this, Gentile Roman centurion, by anyone in Israel. I haven't seen anyone in Israel who got this kind of faith. And it's very clear even in Matthew that Jesus came so that the whole world might be saved. 
And then in verse 11, he says, many will enter the kingdom from the east and the west, but none of the disciples says, wait a minute, this is confusing to us. This requires some interpretation. Can you clarify? Because now we are confused. You taught us about these Gentiles who are going to come from the east and the west. Of course, Jesus doesn't mention the north. So obviously it doesn't apply to north. Although, as we said, Jesus noticed that nobody came from Tyre and Sidon. So that's where he goes. But they read it so much in the confirmation bias that they don't see what's going on. And so, once again, they fail the test while she passes it. Henry? Yes, it is impressive, the honesty of Mark and Matthew, and tell us this story. Because at the end of both descriptions of the event, the disciples don't say that they are surprised or they're amazed of what has just happened. The story just continues. I mean, they didn't even notice what happened, Right. When Jesus is talking about this woman and he refers in a way that will click in the minds of the disciples, a dog, they felt reassured. Okay, Jesus is on our side. But can you imagine that this dog has greater faith than you, that the healing took place without Jesus needing to say anything or to do anything? He just said, well, Healing has already taken place. Great is your faith from a dog. And the disciples didn't even notice that if they were not the dogs and they did not even have that faith, it's just so much of a description of the reality that sometimes we continue to live in, probably not sometimes, but very often within church, that consistently see ourselves in a better position, not even able to discover how much greater faith is outside of our walls in many times. That's right. They are completely stuck. And so they don't see what's going on. So Jesus says, okay, of course, I will get rid of her. I was only sent for Israel. We are God's favorites. We are on the inside. It's us versus them. We have no time for Gentiles, for females, for second right, riffraff. Good call, guys. I will send her away. And so then Jesus comes to the third round of the testing and says to her, in verse 27, and so he said to her, the children must be fed first because it would not be fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. Do you see what's going on? Jesus preceding section, verse 26, the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin. She begged him. In Mark, it says she knelt before him. And Jesus says, do you realize what your theology does to another human being? Do you see how your thinking is insulting her, how it makes her feel? Nope. They are completely insensitive. So Jesus says, okay, let me do this. It's not right to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. And the disciples, what is their response? That's right. That's right. You verbalized our thinking. You said it so right. So once again, they fail the exam because they don't understand what's going on. And you know, yes, Iris says in the chat, Jesus in the tradition of Old Testament prophets enacts a parable, is an enacted parable. So Jesus talks to both sides. And of course, because it's written, you don't see where he's turned to and he talks to the woman, but he addresses the disciples so that she can see what's going on because she doesn't give up. And you know what happens then? After he says to her, it's not fair to take children's food and throw it to the dogs. 
she says to him, Lord, for the third time, and says something that it's not easy to see in your translation of the Bible, which is lost in English translation, because then she says, but even the dogs, and she uses a diminutive form for the little doggy. And she says, even little doggets, little doggies under the table eat little crummies that are falling from the table of the children. So not only she's respectful, and for the third time she says, Sir, Lord, to him, but she takes that word, and instead of taking it as an insult directed to her, she takes it and plays with it with this playful attitude and says, yeah, but even little doggies eat little crummies that fall from the table. Sure enough, feed the children, but surely you got little crummy for me, don't you? And that's when Jesus says, when he sees this attitude that she has a real playful attitude, that she is not discouraged by all that's going on, he says to her, oh, woman. Once again, in the English translation, you don't have it, but he says, oh, woman. English translation to vernacular would be, wow, wow, woman. You have a mega faith. The same Greek word that you use for mega church and the great big. Now, remember, in Matthew 8, 26, Jesus says to the disciples during the storm, oligopistoi, you are people of little faith. But she is a woman of mega faith. And she says, oh, woman, you have a mega faith, a great faith. She passed the third exam that they failed the third exam. She is the eagle up there. There are pigeons down there, and they are not even getting it. Until the day she died, she remembered that Jesus said to her, wow, woman, I am so impressed with your great faith. She never forgot that, how Jesus commended her faith. Rita? Matthew says that the crumbs fall from their master's table and Mark refers to the children's crumbs. Um, we all know how mucky children can be when they feed. But I think more significance perhaps is that is she referencing the fact that these people at the table, these people who call themselves God's children, aren't actually taking everything that they've been given and they're just tossing it away? Yes. So go ahead. Yes, you are still my Lord and Master. Go ahead, by all means, feed the kids, feed the children. But I bet you've got a crumb left over even for me. Arthur? I want to thank you for the insights that you've given from the original text, which makes me think that this woman knew the Lord and she knew his mission and why he was there, because she still insists in her responses, because she knows she has to get something from him. In comparison, his disciples oftentimes didn't seem to get his mission as well as understand his purposes. So I think I sensed in your explanations that she really knew that this is the Messiah and I have to get every little bit of crumbs that fall off the table. Yes. And so it turns out that they who thought they were at the top of the ladder, the disciples, the Jewish males, they are at the bottom. They are the pigeons. And she, this degraded Canaanite Gentile woman, she's an eagle. She's at the top of the ladder. Jesus says, wow, woman, your faith is great. And so she goes away and we never see her again. And then many years later, and here's the good news, the disciples are not going to get it. Jesus knows. They have three Fs on their exam card. Can you imagine how Jesus must have felt that night? 
I am not getting anywhere with these guys. This is a wasted time, wasted opportunity. But God has patience with them. And then many years later, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, when the Holy Spirit comes, one day Peter is praying to God and he has this vision to go home to a home of a Roman soldier, a Gentile named Cornelius. And he has this vision of these unclean animals lowered down from heaven. And he hears the word, kill and eat. And he said, no, no, I have never done anything like that. And when the vision is finished, there is a knock on the door and there is an invitation to go and see the Gentile. And Peter says, sure, sure enough, since the day, that embarrassing moment, you would expect that Peter would remember this for the rest of, the, of his life. That embarrassing woman, when he got three Fs, as the valedictorian of his class and the Canaanite woman got three A. No, he doesn't remember. He has no clue what's going on. And then finally, when the Gentiles are converted, when he comes to Cornelius and says, so I have come here because I was told in the vision that I'm supposed to be here, but I have no idea what I am doing here. I have no idea why I came. So Cornelius says to him, you know, it's called the Great Commission. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Do you remember what the Messiah was teaching you? Tell us more. And then it clicks. And Peter says in Acts 10, 34, Oh, now at last, now at last I see that God plays no favorites. Can you hear the angels in heaven singing, Hallelujah. Okay, it was before Handel's Messiah, but sure, they had their own version. And the angels are saying, Oh, finally, we are getting somewhere. You should have got it there in Matthew 15, but you didn't. So at least you got it now in Acts 10. It makes no difference who you are, where you are from. The message that was sent to Israel through Jesus Christ is put together. And that's the gospel. That's the good news. And it's for everybody. Now I am getting it. And the angels are doing high five and singing hallelujah. We are getting somewhere. Sean. I appreciate you. You're high-fiving with the angels there. <laughs> yeah. um, how many years, Daniel, is represented between these attempted lessons from Christ to his disciples and Peter's revelation in Acts? A number of years. How many do you anticipate that to be? As I'm thinking that we have the luxury of reflecting on these things, whereas in the moments of that learning and those lessons, these disciples were really trying to come up to speed with a bunch of stuff that obviously we see that they didn't come up to. And the many challenges that I still have in my own life after years of reflection to learn some of these lessons. Um, so with all that's going on in that compressed time period, what are we looking at? 15, 20 years? Less than that. Hmm. And these attempted discoveries on the part of the disciples, discovering what Jesus was really trying to do here had so many obstacles for them in their personal lives, their private lives, and in all the traditions that they were trying to sort out in their own minds. So we need to give ourselves the same room to learn these lessons as well. And one of the things that has helped me over the years as I read the scriptures, particularly in these moments of reaching out to others in our mission and the blindness that I should have with respect to any of the biases that I bring. I've turned the phrase over the lost sheep of Israel to the sheep that Israel has lost as a way for me to realize that all people everywhere should be included in what traditionally has been called Israel and the mission that we have as people of that legacy. The sheep that Israel has lost 
they're from everywhere around the world. So that has helped me over time here. Thank you. And remember when did Jacob became Israel? When did he get the name Israel? After he wrestled and was defeated in his own presumptions. And he wrestled with God. And as far as God is concerned, he was victorious. Now, what is she doing? What is the woman doing here? When Jesus is silent, ignores her, then says, I am only sent for the lost sheep of Israel. I can't help you. That's not a part of my job description. And then he says, no, 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 we need to feed children. We cannot throw the precious bread to dogs. What is she doing? She's wrestling with God and she's victorious. She comes on the right side. And Jesus says to the disciples, for me, she's part of Israel. You are the lost sheep. She's Israel. Because she wrestled with God and came up victorious. All right, time to wrap it up. What's the lesson? Can you look under number nine? Robert Putman says that there are two types of connections, bonding and bridging. Bonding happens between people who see themselves similar, and so they develop deep connections. Bridging takes place between people who are separated. Bonding is between people of the same ethnic group and economical status. The birds of feather flock together. But bridging connections, by definition, are across people of diverse social groups. Now, what's going on here? Why is this important in the context of the mission, quarter on mission? What is Jesus teaching these disciples? Guys, you don't realize how damaged you are. Your attitude has damaged you more than you realize. The sin of exclusion has damaged your perception to the extent that here is a Gentile woman and she has greater faith, greater understanding than you have. And you don't even see it. And it will take years to heal, to repair, so that Peter can say, now at last, now at last I see God plays no favorites. He was supposed to get it there in Matthew 15, but he didn't. But thankfully God is patient with all of us and our Fs and our failures and our slowness and still works on each one of us and shows that For the Pharisees, how pious you are was determined by how big is the circle of people that you exclude. And then religious leaders in Jesus' day believed that their refusal to associate with people who did not live up to their religious standards was the highest proof of their devotion to God. Shouldn't the righteous separate from the outcasts? And so the more spiritual you are, the bigger the category of outcast for you. And so the outcast was based on ethnicity on gender, on physical problems like lepers, or practicing so-called despicable traits. So the rabbis had tax collectors, dung collectors, and pigeon keepers, and prostitutes, of course. These are the despicable, despised traits. Or practicing these things that defile them, and they cannot associate with the righteous. And Jesus, who is sinless and innocent, comes and embraces the outcasts. You think you are righteous? You are not righteous at all. Let me tell you who you are. You are a friend of sinners. That's who you are. And Jesus says, that's right. And that's who the Father is. And if you want to be part of the movement that I am starting, you better be friends of sinners as well. You better get it. You better become embracers. By embracing the outcasts, Jesus underscored the sinfulness of the person and systems that cast them out. That's not how my kingdom works. And as we said, Although she's a woman, she's a foreigner, she's a pagan, she is from Tar and Sidon, so an enemy in their eyes. For Jesus, she's Israel because she wrestled with God. 
And the disciples have never seen anyone with such confidence, such risk-taking attitude with Jesus. She can even have the play going on with Jesus and say, yeah, sure. But even little doggies eat the little crummies. And I'm sure that if you give one to me, I'm sure you have one left. The children will not go hungry. They originally thought that it would be an act of remarkable condescension on their part even to listen to her. They thought that she had nothing to teach them and it would not occur to them in the wildest dreams that they are that little and she's an eagle up there. Every human being created in God's image has something to offer to you, something to teach you. And if you are damaged by our thinking and exclusion, then you can't see it. And it turns out that she's a master in every respect. She's relating to Jesus on a level of understanding, humility, trust, and playfulness that puts the disciples to shame. And that's what exclusion does to you. You think that by associating these who are outside, you are doing them a favor. And you don't realize how it's damaging you and your soul. And when we embrace other people, we are the ones who receive the greatest gift. You are not part of the inner ring. You are part of the outside ring because you exclude other people. And God is not like that. So it turns out that those disciples who thought that they are the exclusive inner ring, they are in the pigeon group. And the pagan Gentile woman, she's in the inner ring, one of the eagles, because she understands what they don't understand. Now imagine if the community of Jesus understood this today in a polarized world, polarized church, how different community there would be. So number 11, behind excluding people lies fear, pride, ignorance, or just a simple desire to feel superior. What can we do? What action steps do we need to take so that People who have been excluded can feel part of the community and that God has something to offer to them. Because the lesson is, in the context of mission, faith shows up in unexpected places, even in Tar and Sidon. Do you think that faith shows up in unexpected places still today? That you and I have something to learn, like Peter and the disciples in their day in Matthew 15? Sean? Yes, thank you. Precisely, Daniel. That is how God has helped to move me over the years. I no longer, God willing, look for sin and or aberration in people. When I encounter people with God's help, I look for their faith. I look for ways to affirm who they are in their spiritual encounter and their spiritual walk. And that has really freed me up from so many of the darker regions of judgment, of superiority, et cetera, et cetera. So one of the ways that I can reduce my own superiority is to continue to look at people that I encounter as God's children, and I'm looking for their faith, and I'm looking for the way the Holy Spirit has been working in their lives already. And I'm trying to affirm that in people, and that really opens up so many opportunities for us to share in a deeper friendship. Thank you. Arthur? I guess we maybe as a corporate body, maybe even as the church universal, if you will, in learning the character of God and understanding who God really is, there's a lot of things that we've messed up in whatever we're doing when we think we are doing that for God. In God's name, we've hurt a lot of people. We've been unkind and very mean in the name of God. You just only need to attend any regular service anyway in the world and listen to the language that we use where we are more like speaking about ourselves more than about God and being proud of why we are within the walls and how much outside the walls 
are those who are already outside, you know, that kind of language where it's always about us and magnifying how included we are, something like that. Well, when I hear it now, I cringe, but that's the exact language that I was using and maybe there's still remnants of it that still remain. And I'm praying that God, maybe through lessons like these, it helps us to get rid of all these things because they are stalling the mission that he has sent us to accomplish. Thank you. Iris? I'm inclined to sharing a little bit about the context in which I work in an Adventist institution. And I think that binary Adventist, non-Adventist is also a trap easy to fall into in this context. And recently, I think, shaped by the discussions here at Pinole and also John Pauline's Center for World Religions, it occurred to me, we expect people of other world religions that work with us to listen to our prayers and our devotionals all the time, because, I mean, that's a beautiful way to start a meeting. And this month, I had this impression all of a sudden, it's Ramadan, and I invited a colleague, a Muslim professor, and said, hey, let's the faculty at Ridley Faculty Council tell us about the spiritual blessings of Ramadan that you experience currently. And I think he was very surprised that I would invite him. And yesterday, it was the Eid, April 21, and I just wished him happy Eid and thanked him again for the devotional. And in the way he responded, I could see that this had fully landed because I was approaching him as someone who also worships God and someone who has something to share that could give me insight into blind spots that I may have. So I feel like, okay, probably a few years ago, it would not have even occurred to me to do something like this. But slowly, God is inviting me to expand and to buy into a larger vision and to be mindful of how he is at work, not only within our faith community, but also in other people, in other faith traditions. And as Sean said earlier, there are things that we can affirm and where we can see the footprints of God in the lives of others. That's right. As Paul says in Athens, there is something about you Athenians that I like. I like how seriously you take your religion. That we can say to this Muslim man, in the age of McDonaldization, where people feel that if they haven't eaten for two hours, they are going to die. I like how seriously you take your religion, that you are willing not to eat the whole day as an expression of your devotion to God. And you know, it's not going to kill you. My only release some powers and thoughts that you might not realize are they out there. Terry, let's read Colossians 3.11. Paul writes to the church in Colossae about the nature of God's kingdom. In Acts 2, the church was born when the Holy Spirit comes, and the world has never seen anything like this before. A community of love that transcended every different kind of barrier and wall that people created. Colossians 3.11. In that renewal, there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Look who is sitting here around the table in this community. Who? Greeks next to the Jews, circumcised next to the uncircumcised. The Jewish people are sitting next to uncircumcised people. They are all fitting together. They are all part of one community, learning from each other, enhancing, blessing one another. Barbarian, 
You know what's that? The Greeks came up with the term because they could not understand the language that these people are speaking. So they talk bar bar. That's the dog sound. They cannot speak proper Greek like us. Remember the my big fat Greek wedding? And the father of the bride says, why we you have been chasing the buffaloes? We already had philosophers. We have this language that the philosophers use, and you guys can't even speak the proper language. You are barbarians. You only speak barbar. Nobody can understand what you are talking about. Scythian, who were this? In Greek, skithizo was a word that meant to behave like a Scythian. These were these tribal people who lived around the Black Sea, and they were regarded as bottom feeders, known for their filthy habits. They took pride that they never were washing in water. They worshipped sword. They were so violent, they drank the blood of their enemies. And so skithizo in Greek was to live like Scythian, drink immoderately, shave your head because they scalp people and engage in wanton violence. But Paul says, isn't that cool? Just look around. Here are barbarians and Greeks loving each other in the same group. Here are Scythians, skinheaded gangbangers, Rich people, poor people, slave and free, male and female, we are all one community. And that's what God is trying to create. You and I have a long way to go, but thank God, just as he was patient with Peter and the disciples, he's patient with us. And so hopefully, as a result of this lesson and God's Holy Spirit, one day we'll be there and we'll be closer to what God wants to teach us in our days. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, please forgive us our exclusivistic spirit. Remember that we are where we are because... You came to our world, invited us because of your great mercy, in spite of the fact that we are all in that pigeon group. Help us to be open and receive to what you want to give us and to listen to you and to see how you are at work outside of our hearts, outside of our community, outside of our circle of influence, and to learn the lesson you want us to learn in this time and this place. I thank you that you are more willing to do this than we are willing to follow you and help us to be closer to you, and to be more inclusive. We pray in your name. Amen. I had a thought after the discussion of the sheep and the shepherd of the sheep, and I noticed that there's two groups. The first group, Jesus said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So there's sheep that have a shepherd that are lost, the straight away from the shepherd. And then there's a herd of sheep that don't have a shepherd at all. So I think that maybe Jesus is trying to, and I think he's talking to the disciples here, that he's trying to connect the lost sheep of the house of Israel back to the real shepherd so that they can go out and go to the sheep that don't have a shepherd to bring them into the fold. I don't know what your thoughts about that is, but yeah, definitely. Jesus sees himself as a shepherd for all, while the disciples don't see themselves as responsible. They are just rejoicing yeah. that we are in, we are in the fold. Isn't that amazing? I also yes. need something, okay. Daniel. With Mark 6, when Jesus feeds the 5,000 and the disciples cannot understand until he has to send them into the sea and appear to them. I've struggled with that a lot. In Mark 6? Yes. Feeding of the 5,000. They don't understand, so he forces them to get in, into the boat by force. <laughs> yes, you need to read John 6. Oh, John, John 6. 6. Oh, 
Okay. Yeah, if you read John 6, it's the only miracle which is in all four Gospels. And in John 6, it says that the crowd wanted to make Jesus the king after this event. Because they uh -huh. say, if we have a Messiah like this, Romans have no chance. Within two weeks, we defeat Rome because he will provide for the soldiers if someone is hurt. He will heal them if someone is killed. He will resurrect them. Romans have no chance. This guy needs to be our king. And Jesus forced the disciples into the boat because guess what? The disciples are excited about the idea. Oh, thank you. Thank you <laughs> so much. Know, if Jesus is the king, they will be the ministers and they already have the discussion on the ministries which they are going to have. And so Jesus says, no, 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 you need to go to the other side. He forces them in the boat and they are in better safety on the sea than they would be on the solid land with crazy ideas about earthly kingdom. Oh, thank you so much. I've been and struggling Jesus with that. Brought, <laughs> thank and you. Jesus goes on the mountain to pray and say... <laughs> I am not going to succumb to this temptation. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, Will. I hope to see you next time. Goodbye for now.